Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, welcoming you from Ottawa, Canada. Each and every week, a guest and I unpack, delve into the weekly Torah reading that is being offered in synagogues throughout the world. Longtime listeners of our show know that the Torah is divided into 54 weekly sections, known in Hebrew as a parashah. And each and every week, that parasha is read on Monday, Thursday, and completed on Saturday morning. This week, we are going to be speaking about a parasha in the book of Genesis, known in Hebrew as Toldot. It begins in Genesis 25, verse 19, for those who may want to follow along in a text. Let me offer to you an overview of this parasha before I introduce my guest. This week, we read that Isaac, Abraham's son, through his wife Sarah, and Isaac's wife Rebekah, endure 20 childless years until their prayers are answered. And Rebekah conceives. She experiences a difficult pregnancy, and the text tells us that the children struggle inside her. God tells her that there are two nations in the womb, and that the younger will prevail over the elder. Esau emerges first. Jacob is born clutching Esau's heel. Esau grows up to be a hunter, a man of the field. Jacob, we are told, is Ishtam Yoshev Ba'ohel. He is a quiet man, dweller in his tents. Isaac seems to favor Esau, and Rebekah loves Jacob. One day, returning exhausted and hungry from the hunt, Esau sells his birthright, the rights that he has accrued as the firstborn, to Jacob for a pot of red lentil stew. I'm sure that much of this narrative is known to many of you. The Torah portion continues, though. In Gerar, in the land of the Philistine, Isaac presents Rebekah as his sister, something that his father and mother did many years ago in Egypt, out of fear that he will be killed by someone coveting her beauty. He farms the land, reopens the wells dug by his father Abraham, and digs a series of his own wells. Over the first two, there is strife with the Philistines, but the waters of the third well are enjoyed in tranquility. Esau marries two Hittite women. Isaac grows old and blind and expresses his desire to bless Esau before he dies, the blessing offered by father to firstborn child. While Esau goes off to hunt for his father's favorite food, Rebekah dresses Jacob in Esau's clothes, covers his arm and neck with good scenes to stimulate 
simulate the feel of his hairier brother, and prepares a similar dish and sends Jacob to his father. Deceiving his father, Jacob receives his father's blessings for the dew of the heaven and the fat of the land and mastery over his brother. When Esau returns and discovers the deception, all Isaac can do for his weeping son is to predict that he will live by his sword and that when Jacob falters, the younger brother will forfeit his supremacy over the elder. The Torah portion concludes by telling us that Jacob leaves home for Sharon to flee Esau's wrath and to find a wife in the family of his mother's brother, Lavan. Esau marries a third wife, Machalot, the daughter of Ishmael. Now, for listeners of our show or those who read the biblical text, you will see that there are many names which repeat themselves, Ishmael being uh, Abraham's son by virtue of the mother known as Hagar. Uh, so Esau marries the daughter of Ishmael. There are many aspects of this Torah portion for us to discuss. With me this morning to offer some insight into our Torah portion is Rabbi Joshua Goldstein. Rabbi Goldstein served as rabbi at Sharei Shalom Temple in Springfield, New Jersey. He served there for 30 years and now is the rabbi emeritus. Following his retirement, he served as rabbinic leader at Sharei Hayam in Manahawkin, New Jersey, and now serves as a rabbinic leader at High Center for Jewish Life in Somerset County, New Jersey. Rabbi Goldstein has been active in a number of local and national organizations, including the Rabbinic Cabinet of the Association for Reform Zionists of America, the Rabbinic Advisory Committee of Camp Harlem, a summer camp for young people associated with the URJ, Reform Movement of North America. He is past president of the Springfield Clergy Association. He is uh, a teacher par excellence and has a great love for Israel, uh, Jewish heritage. Uh, he's married, has two sons and two granddaughters. And of course, this Torah portion about families should be right in his wheelhouse. Uh, Rabbi Goldstein, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Hi, Rabbi Garden. It's great to be on your show, and uh, hi to to all the audience. What you forgot to say is that you and I, Rabbi Garden, have known each other for a long, long time, and that you are my dear friend, cherished friend, and I'm so honored to again be on the show. Well, it's a pleasure for me to renew our connection and uh, to offer to the audience uh, the words of one of this generation's uh, most insightful teachers. So I want to begin with uh, the following question. Um, we have been introduced in the book of Genesis, starting in Genesis 12, to Abraham and his wife to Abraham and his concubine, to the story of the birth of the two sons, 
And now we're introduced uh, to the story of Isaac and Rebecca and their two children. Um, let's begin by asking the question, why does the Torah uh, introduce us to what appears to be such dysfunctional families? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great question. Um, my own approach is, um, in this case, not always to focus on the family flaws, which so many people who studied the Bible, the Torah, think about about Jacob's deceptions of his father by disguising himself as his brother in order to receive the firstborn blessing, about Jacob bribing Esau out of his birthright, about sibling rivalry in general. Sometimes when I read this, it's always interesting, but it strikes me as almost uh, actually a normal kind of family dynamic. My brother and my sister and I, when we were younger, were always at each other's throats, Sibling rivalry is not strange for a lot of people. So when I look at this, I try to look at the big picture and and the values that are transcended in the portion. So um, for me, what is so key here is actually the very name of the Torah portion. So in Hebrew, again, we're looking at Genesis 25, verse 19. It starts, The Ele Toldot Yitzhak Ben Abraham. This is the story of Isaac, son of Abraham. And it goes on to say that Abraham's son was Isaac, and then uh, more of their descendants. But I love the notion that um, the Torah, this Torah portion begins by saying, this is the story. And it, 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 to me, what that means is that this is the story of the descendants of Abraham, of his ancestry. And the profound application, I think, for us is that we also each have our own stories that are so significant to us and that ground us in our identity. The sad part is that a lot of us don't know our stories sufficiently. I'm going to give you an example, and then Rabbi Garden, anytime you want to break in, please feel free. Um, when I officiated a lot of Barbat mitzvahs, as I'm sure Rabbi Garten did too, we would meet with the families, you know, a week or two beforehand, and we would go over Hebrew names for people being called up to the Torah scroll for that honor. Um, and I would, I would ask them their Hebrew names. So many times, people were just not able to muster an answer. They were confused about their Hebrew names. They're really not sure who they were named after. Um, that in itself is, is a telling uh, uh, suggestion that we need to work more on knowing our own stories. That's what I think this Parsha, this Torah portion, is actually telling us. It begins, this is the story of Abraham, or this is the story of Isaac, and now it challenges us to know our own stories. And I'll go even further than that. Let me personalize this as much as possible. I'm named after my grandfather, who I never knew, Grandpa Joshua. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of that. But in our own family, there's confusion about my grandfather. Was he an accountant? Or was he working in the lumber business? I just had lunch with my sister two hours ago, and we were talking about this. What part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was he from? What was, what was the catalyst for his decision 
to bring our family to the United States? Was it because of anti-Semitism? Was it because of financial opportunity? We don't really, there are different narratives for all of this. But what I do know is that Grandpa Joshua was a devoted Jew. And maybe that's the only thing I really need to know. Maybe it's the most important link to him that I need to know, that he was devoted to his tradition, to his heritage. And given the, the environment he lived in, it's more than that. It's about heroism and how in the face of a hostile environment, a hostile world towards so often towards the Jewish people, he was able to commit to keeping up that tradition and that heritage. So the applications I see from this Torah portion are actually very profound. Um, and it, it challenges us to know our own histories. Um, we are programmed traditionally to figure that out by our Hebrew names. In my case, Yehoshua ben Meir, the Henya Joshua, son of Meir and Helen, Meir and Helen and my parents. So we're conditioned by our Hebrew names to know a little bit about our ancestry. Um, and when we know that, that, that a bit more about who we are and where we came from, we recognize that our story is really a remarkable, extraordinary story. So uh, there's a lot more to say about that. Sure. So, so you've introduced us to the uh, essence of the early books of the story of Genesis, which is the uh, notion of uh, genealogy, that the Jewish people trace their genealogy uh, from Abraham and Sarah forward, and to some degree from Abraham and Sarah backward. But I want to push you a little bit because I'm thrilled that you introduced the story of your namesake, uh, Joshua. But in introducing him, you suggested to us that there is some uncertainty about his stories. Uh, now, we live in a time when um, it's very easy to uh, have some uh, questions about uh, people's uh, past and life stories. And we live at a time when um, um, the veracity of people's experiences um, is questionable. So I don't want to really ask you about whether your namesake uh, truly uh, came here for a reason that you know, but I wanted to reframe that experience of what is truth into the following. More than your grandfather or great-grandfather uh, maintaining his Jewish identity, was he a person of character? Then that can be a, a complex uh, question. Since I never knew him, I go only by uh, what what my own parents have has shared with me. I think he was a person of, of character. Um, if, if you, if ca the word character can be expanded to include respecting your past, respecting heritage and tradition. Yeah, I know he had flaws. We can touch on that, and that specifically is applicable to this Torah portion. I've been told that he had a sharp temper. That he, um, when he came here, 
with his family, plus probably about the age of 50, um, that he never learned English. Some say he never bothered to learn English. He just, you know, was content to continue speaking Yiddish and uh, to living in his own little bubble that way. Um, so I, I wish I could answer that more clearly, but I tend to think, uh, Rabbi Gordon, that um, by simply by virtue of the fact that he was devoted to his tradition, which in its in and of itself uh, reflects on character, is is sufficient to say, yeah, he was a person of character. For example, our tradition, the Jewish tradition, suggests among many things that one of our values is learning for its own sake. Not for graduation, not for grades, not for getting ahead, but learning for its own sake. Probably Shema is the term that we use. Study for its own sake. That's such a noble value right there. So I like to think that that our tradition, our heritage, builds character through its own values. And to answer, to, to circle back to your question, Rabbi Gordon. Yeah, I would like to think that my grandfather was a person of, of good character. And so for you, and perhaps for your uh, brother, uh, who we should identify as also a rabbi, um, your namesake's commitment to Jewish tradition um, was paralleled by the way he led his life as you knew it. Not in the past, but as you knew it. Right. Well, that's helpful, perhaps, to our listeners, because Jewish tradition calls upon one to uh, uh, act in uh, accordance with tradition. And there's supposed to be an um, intersection between how you live your life and what the values of the faith are. Um, and we see many people today, unfortunately, who claim to be religious, but whose life actions are not uh, in sync with the values of their religion. Uh, now, in our Torah portion, we have this unusual occurrence that I'd like you to speak to if you could. And that is that... Um, Jacob and Rebecca are childless for 20 years. And Abraham and Sarah are childless. And then they both have uh, two children, uh, which leads to some kind of discord. And you've spoken eloquently about family discord. But again, since we're speaking about a text that has such power for so many people, how do you explain to people that the story seems to require both Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and uh, Rebecca to be childless? And, and this will uh, repeat itself with the next of the patriarchs, with um, uh, Jacob's uh, children as well. Yeah, I'm not sure if I understand the question exactly as you're framing it, Steve. Um, but if indeed we're touching on the flaws in people's character. No, I wanted to make a transition if I could. Okay. And that is, let's accept that the Torah portion is telling us that all people are, are flawed. Yep. 
and that all people, even though they're flawed, can be role models. We'll accept that. But then there's a motif in our Torah about married couples and the question of barrenness. And I'm wondering, since this motif um, repeats itself on and on three times, if you see any connection to this family discord theme that you've introduced and the literary motif of our patriarchs and matriarchs having difficulty conceiving. Is that clear, a question? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, the, the truth is, Rabbi Gordon, I'm not sure I actually ever thought of it in that way, but let me see if I can uh, approach it, and you tell me where I'm, where I'm maybe uh, on or off on this. Yeah, there is that, that uh, thread of barrenness, of childlessness. I tend to think of that as in keeping with Genesis's uh, stress on challenges that we all face. And so they, they use the idea of, bar- they use the, the reality of barrenness for our distant ancestors as one of the challenges that they faced. Um, and, 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 and what that means is very simple, I think, and that is that every human being goes through life facing challenges. Um, I, I know that's simplistic, but I think that's sometimes important for people to recognize that we nobody escapes life without, you know, a, a um, reckoning of some sort. Um, the, the fact that ultimately our ancestors, you know, were able to conceive children can sometimes be be taken as a reflection of their piety, and they prayed to God, and they were rewarded with children. Well, as one rabbi who does not really accept the notion of reward and punishment, um, that is, that if you are a good person, and you pray, and you're pious, etc., that you'll be rewarded ultimately, and if you're not, you'll be punished. That's something that I don't see working out in, in my own experiences, and maybe a lot of it has to do with, as a student of Jewish history, and only, whatever it is, 80 years since the Holocaust and so much else that's happened to our people, that I, I just can't bring myself to affirm the notion of reward and punishment. So, yeah, th- there is a, mot- a common motif, a common thread of barrenness, um, but I, th- I like to chalk that up also to, the, the, first of all, to, to the... the the book of Genesis being absolutely honest about human beings, recognizing that we're challenged, nobody's perfect, um, and, 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 and how people were resilient or not resilient in the face of those challenges. So that's where I, I come from with all that. Um, and I think I'll add this too. Um, there is, this Torah portion speaks so, high, so much about diversity within families. There is that common thread of barrenness with the, with, with our patriarchs and matriarchs. But beyond that, the t- two of the key figures in this portion, Jacob and Esau, are so different from each other. And, and many people have, have commented and said they represent two types of Jews. You alluded to this already, Rabbi Garden, Jacob being the, the quiet one, the studious one, a little bit devious. 
and he saw his brother being the strong and the active and the, and the, the hunter. Um, historically, you know, that we Jews have identified with Jacob. But what is so extraordinary about living in this time of ours is we now have a new phenomenon within our Judaism called Zionism. And Zionism flips that on its head and provokes us to rethink this and maybe to identify more with Esau, that we are no longer powerlessness, that we're no longer powerless, and that we, uh, one of our strengths is our strength indeed. So um, I think to, to, to put a, a, a ribbon on that, this Torah portion teaches us a lot about diversity within families and how siblings can be different um, and, and how we have ultimately two models of Jewishness that probably can be easily reconciled with each other, the quiet, studious uh, Jewish person and the strong and active Jewish person. I, I do think that Zionism has had a big imprint on us in terms of reconciling those two. So I'll, I'll stop there, except to say that, um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, you've introduced the notion of Zionism. And of course, even as far back as the story of Abraham, uh, we read of the journey to the promised land. Um, and certainly in this week's Torah portion, what are the blessings all about? if not some sort of um, recognition that there is a promise uh, for Jacob. And where is that promise? I mean, what is Jacob's uh, blessing that he will uh, receive the fat of the land? Right. And the fat of the land uh, certainly has been interpreted by Jewish history and experience as meaning uh, Israel. Mm -hmm. And so this Torah portion, as you so uh, interestingly remind us, is a uh, powerful connection uh, to the uh, promise that um, Jews have traditionally understood as part of the uh, Torah, that God makes a promise to his uh, covenantal people to provide them, and here it gets a little bit tricky in the modern world, but provide them with a land that they can call their own. Yep. So, so that's very helpful. My guest this morning has been uh, Rabbi Joshua Goldstein of New Jersey. He's helped us to unpack this really uh, challenging Torah portion that offers us insight into how the Hebrew scriptures speak about families and how they speak about the normalcy uh, of uh, family dynamics. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this morning's show on the website chri.ca and on iTunes, and you can uh, see part of us live on YouTube. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts and for Rabbi Joshua Goldstein, I wish you shalom and a good day. Shalom.